1: So first off, why don't you just say your name and introduce yourself. Tell me who you are.
0: My name is Vishal kuru I'm a high school junior right now, and I'm in the Reno, Nevada area.
1: Vishal is 17, and he's been on social media since the winter of 2019 when he joined TikTok in middle school.
0: I'm not sure if I exactly like this, but one reason why I was using TikTok is because the videos are very, very good at showing you what you want to see, and they're really catered towards your interests. So it's it's honestly kind of hard to get off TikTok once you start, but um, I think since it's just so catered to you, that's what drew me in towards TikTok, and I, I never really experienced the same type of feeling when I was using Instagram or Snapchat.
1: Vishal's feed was mostly sports, basketball and football, with some memes and music thrown in. But earlier this year, he started to realize that he was scrolling for no particular reason. And when he looked at his iPhone's screen time reports, they started to worry him.
0: There was a point where I was seeing screen time of like eight hours a day. And then I would go in and try and investigate it a little bit more. And six of those eight hours are just on TikTok. So once I saw that, I realized like, I'm I'm just spending way too much time on here. And, and this is probably not good for my mental health.
1: What about it made you think it wasn't good for your mental health?
0: Firstly, I think because I was spending so much time on TikTok, I started to feel like it was taking time away from other things that I could have been contributing to, like my schoolwork and hanging out with friends, playing sports, connecting with nature, and also, I would just notice myself scrolling to kind of, I'd say cope with the things that are going on, in, that were going on in my life. Um, hmm. Like when things got stressful with school, I noticed myself scrolling a lot more. I know this is a big concern with TikTok, but since the videos are so short, I was kind of curious about whether or not it was reducing my attention span or my ability to focus So that's another element of mental health that I was kind of concerned with.
1: In October, Vishal quit TikTok. He still occasionally goes on Instagram and Snapchat, but his social media use is way down. Now, when he gets stressed, he plays tennis or goes outside. A lot of adults clearly are worried about teenagers and social media and mental health, Utah just passed a law that will bar anyone under 18 from social media unless they have parental permission.
0: This is about empowering families, it's about empowering parents, and it's about holding these social media companies accountable for what we know now. This is a data-driven approach, and and we know this is killing our kids. We have to start there.
1: Other states are enacting or discussing similar laws. But in these conversations about social media, Vishal says adults are missing a few things. The benefits of online friends and joining social movements, for starters, but also just the perspectives of kids.
0: A lot of the sources that they get their information from are are usually not directly from a teenager, so it's kind of a diluted perspective, I feel like. So, you know, if you're a parent having conversations with your kid to try and understand what it's like for them is a really good idea, rather than relying on a news source written by An older person you can talk directly to, someone who's actually experiencing it, and get a sort of primary perspective.
1: Today on the show, social media and the social lives of teenagers. The good, the bad, and what the science really says. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Like a lot of debates on or about the internet, it can be hard to find nuance when it comes to conversations about social media and teenagers. Things can get heated fast. I really didn't want this episode to be consumed with moral panic or sweeping generalizations. So I called up Dr. Mitch Prinstein. He's a professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and the chief science officer at the American Psychological Association. But more importantly he studies teenagers. And the first thing he wants you to understand is that young people are internally wired to find each other.
2: For adolescents, one of the first areas of their brain developing is the part that makes them crave more peer connections. So this is all a backdrop for understanding what happens when you add in social media to the mix.
1: When did you start to realize that social media itself was was going to be key to study in what you do?
2: Oh, it's funny. We have been studying how kids get along with one another for so long, their popularity, their friendships, their their bullying and peer victimization. And you know, it wasn't it doesn't seem like it was that long ago when kids started asking us, "Wait a minute, you mean like in person?" You mean things that we're saying to each other face-to-face? And we started like, oh, are you like doing instant messaging and texting? Is that what you mean? And, we, you know, over time, it went from a novel new way that kids were interacting with one another to the primary way. And we just realized if you're not studying social media, you're not studying kids' peer relationships anymore.
1: What age are we talking about here? Like The group of, the group of adolescents you look at, how old are they generally? We start
2: a lot of our work in around sixth grade or so. So, you know, we're talking about kind of 11-year-olds and up. And um, it's starting to be too late. You know, a lot of kids are starting to play on social media or with other kinds of tech
1: now, you know, in elementary school. The research around social media and kids is relatively new, and it's not definitive. But Prinstein says it's growing fast. It's probably only been in the last you know, five
2: years that folks are starting to talk to each other more and the research is starting to just explode. A lot of what's out there, though, is still pretty preliminary and descriptive. And what I mean by that is people will look at social media use and an outcome at the same time point. And that's a chicken and egg problem because Hmm. then you can't really tell whether, let's say, someone depressed was gravitating to social media to get compensatory helpful social experiences, or if it was vice versa, or maybe it was just a coincidence and there's no causal link there
1: at all. I want to talk about this in kind of three different buckets, I think. Um, engagement, content, and then design. And And let's let's talk about engagement first. This is something you brought up in your testimony to Congress. Um, what do we know about how kids and teens engage with social media?
2: Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this because... You know, this is where there was some old research that, since, has been synthesized within the research literature, where people put together, you know, all the studies and look at a summary kind of of what we've learned. And here's the here's the ruling: how much time your kid is spending on a screen, probably not the most important variable. Hmm. In fact, there's little link at all between the amount of screen time and any psychological outcome, it seems. And that probably makes sense, right? Some kids might be on there to read the news and listen to a podcast, talk with their friends about it, you know, and that's different than the same amount of time being spent on something that clearly would be more risky.
1: But these are platforms that are built for engagement, right? They want you to keep staying on them.
2: Well, this is where the algorithmic function really comes in. And Talking about that big backdrop, like, let's just think about that for a second. You know, in 60,000 years, we've never outsourced our social relationships to a computer before. We choose who we're friends with, who we talk to, when we talk to them, in what order we talk to them or see what they have to say. That's all machine learning now. And for kids especially, um, we're starting to see that those brilliant minds who have, you know, put these platforms together have found, you know, just the right way to keep kids on much longer than they even want to be on. Hmm. It really sucks you in. Do kids
1: express that to, to, to researchers? Have they expressed that to you?
2: Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, you know, in some of the research that we've done and others have done, folks have used the, um, the clinical dependence criteria that's used for substance abuse and kind of swapped out the words for substance with social media. And you get about 50% of kids saying that they spend more time on than they want. They can't quit even when they try. They're lying or deceiving others or spending extraordinary efforts just to have ongoing access. It's interfering with their roles, their relationships, their homework. They can't look at their parents in the eye at the dinner table because they're staring down at their phone. I mean, every parent knows this, right? But we're seeing that in the data too. We also taught a class on this at UNC Chapel Hill. Undergraduates, really smart kids, um 18 to 22, and we asked them about it and they said, "Oh, I bothered my parents so much when I was 12 to get it, and now I wish they didn't listen to me." Because I now don't feel like I can concentrate, I can't sleep. I wish that my parents had waited before they
1: let me have that device. Then there is the content question. Even with parental controls, the nature of the internet and how people behave on it means teens can be exposed to just about anything. Remember that there's a lot of
2: good that can come from social media, and there are some things that are risky too. But also every kid's going to respond differently. Some kids might have some pre-existing vulnerabilities, you know, maybe based on their identity or the groups that they identify with, maybe based on psychological risk factors, like a concern about their body shape or a tendency towards anxiety or depression already. Um, so when we think about the role of social media, we, we do really have to think about it as an equation. It's who you were before you logged in. And which kinds of content and features? We can't say it's all because of the kid or it's all because of the platform.
1: Well, yeah, I'm thinking specifically about, you know, I am an adult woman. I'm pretty thick-skinned. I've been a journalist for a long time. But I see sexist content or hateful content that makes me feel bad. And so I guess I wonder, like, I'm thinking about black and brown kids being exposed to racist content to—, to you know, young girls being exposed to sexist content or more radicalizing stuff. And so, like, how does does the research say kids respond when they see those kinds of things?
2: Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, the majority of kids are telling us that they are exposed to extreme discrimination or hate or online cyberbullying on several occasions, you know, as they as they use it, either directed towards entire groups of people or directed towards individuals because of their membership hmm. in a minoritized group. And one of the things that happens to kids, well, it happens to adults too, is that we engage in a process of um, what we in psychology call overgeneralization, a, a tendency to kind of, you see a post, it's awful. You see that there are a few likes and comments, you read them, you have a choice. You could say, wow, there are five people that think that way, or there are five people that, that um, have that remarkably different opinion than I do. Or you can say, ah, oh, that's like half the country that must feel that way. I can't believe those people. Well, we all do the latter more than we do the former. We overgeneralize what we see. And the reason why that's so concerning for kids is because they don't have as much other worldly, you know, out of their community exposure. And as a result, what they see online has a remarkable impact in affecting their broad attitudes and their broader behavior because of those comments and those likes.
1: When we come back, why it would be a mistake to ignore the good in social media? Families have a lot going on. what about the the brain itself and brain development itself because the the way these platforms are built they were built initially for adult brains and i'm just curious in terms of like you know what a younger brain can can do with perhaps less impulse control is there any sense of of how a younger brain interacts and whether spending time on these platforms affects brain development well
2: we're learning more and more. What we do know right now is that one of the first areas of the adolescent brain to develop is that area that makes us really attuned to social experiences with peers. Whenever you're getting like attention, or someone nods or smiles or makes you feel powerful, it it makes you feel good temporarily, and that's because of a little dopamine, oxytocin release in that area of the brain when uh, that that develops about a couple of years before you see puberty starting to occur based on observable features, right? So any parent who's had their kid roll their eyes at them when they're 11 years old, you know, that's a sign of their brain developing in that area. So, well, social media, it turns out, is remarkably activating that exact area because it quantifies how many people have looked at your post, liked your post, commented on your post, forwarded your post, and it's a big dopamine-oxytocin hit. Um, and that's, again, something brand new, right? But we kind of are now all these rats in Skinner boxes, you know, pressing that bar to make the light turn on and the food pellets to drop down. Because never before have we been able to access that neurotransmitter hit 24 365.
1: It might be hard to listen to this and not think, ugh, forget it, shut it all down. But Princeton says That could also hurt kids, especially vulnerable ones who are gaining a lot from social media. There are a few things that are really
2: important to remember. First of all, kids that are coming from communities where they feel that they are isolated for whatever reason, but it might be because of their own identity or their own questioning and exploring of their identity— they get tremendous benefit from the opportunity to connect with others who share is similar questioning, can share relevant health information or, or even just social support, you know, of what it's like to be on their own. So we don't want to be taking social media away from everybody forever because then we're really taking away a very important psychological benefit. A lot of kids, secondly, talk about their online-only friends. This is, for adults, crazy to think about, but these are real friendships that they know they'll never meet in real life, ever. But these are close, supportive, really important friendships, and some research is saying that it's those friendships are serving a function to buffer the effects of stress on major negative outcomes.
1: This is your 1980s pen pal. On steroids. You know, that maybe you got through school, but on steroids, yeah. That's right. Exactly.
2: Right. And it's important. I mean, it really, it really helps. I would say also, you know, we're seeing that kids have more diverse friends online than offline. That's great. We're seeing that kids get more social support online than offline. That's great. You know, we're seeing kids engage in more civic activism online. That's awesome. Student led movements because of the ability to unite and educate. You know, that's amazing. So there are lots of really important positives.
1: I've been using the the phrase social media with you, but I, I kind of want to dig down between the different platforms because I, I remember when Francis Haugen leaked some of the Facebook files, there was some really interesting internal data from Meta that, that basically showed that Instagram in particular seemed to be really hard for for teen girls because they were comparing themselves against one another it was very much about the self but like tiktok didn't have that as much because it was performative and silly it, is there anything that allows us to look kind of app by app platform by platform
2: you know scientists much like parents we're having a hard time keeping up with it all cuz it
1: changes so rapidly so and teens are faster than we are
2: Oh my god yeah and so are the social media companies so we we have kind of all moved it seems into talking about function by function so does this have a a public comment function does it have a like function does it have an algorithmic function so we can talk about things that are cutting across different platforms um yeah though by the time we have a paper out on a platform where we've done a study that platform is so, you know, a year old, like and, and not the thing in vogue anymore, that yeah, uh it, it ends up being easier to kind of look at some of these cross-cutting ways that it differs from our offline experiences and from other technological advances, right? Like we've had the telephone, we've had email. What makes this different? And it's this constellation of all these changes happening at once, the quantifiability, the public nature of it, the visual form of the medium all combined with, you know, the algorithms, et cetera.
1: Part of the problem in studying how different platforms affect teens, or adults for that matter, is that the companies don't share all of their data with researchers.
2: So there's a lot of information that um, we could probably say a lot more if we had access. But a lot of what we do is um, we're able to look at kids' activity on their phones, of course, with their parental consent and their own consent. Um, Either they tell us about it or we're able to go into their phones and look at it. Um, A lot of that's collected, and it's on everyone's phone. We just don't always go and look at that. And then we get information from them sometimes by the hour, by the day, by the month, about how they're feeling, how they're doing. And then we make connections, you know, about whether we can link what we know is their social media experiences with their psychological outcomes. But it's really important to note that, you know, this is therefore not able to yield causal conclusions. This is more of a correlational. We see these two things moving together. Um, Maybe one precedes the other in time, but we can't say, in a way a scientist would like to say, that social media is causing an outcome. We can only do that if we were to manipulate some of the variables scientifically or randomly assign kids into different groups. And of course, ethically, that would be really problematic.
1: Well, because I think many people think and say um, there has been a dramatic spike in sort of depression, um, some suicidal ideation among teens and adolescents, and therefore it's the phones. And I wonder how you respond to that.
2: There is likely some contribution that social media has made to what we now are calling a youth mental health crisis. But those of us who have been in psychology for decades will readily tell you the youth mental health crisis started long before social media. It is not because of social media, certainly not exclusively. Um, It has very much to do with stress, polarization, and longstanding concerns about inadequate mental health care in the U.S., I think we need to not look for a quick fix and think that we should just force the social media companies to change, and suddenly kids will all get better. It's it's not that easy, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, it sounds a bit like saying the issue was not looking over here; it's it's looking within.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it was it was after World War II the last time we made a serious commitment to mental health and built a national infrastructure for mental health. And that was built for adults, for veterans coming back from the war. We've been using that model since the 40s and the 50s. Um, So then when people say, why do we have a youth mental health crisis, I say, well, look at all the science we have on what we would do now if we were building a youth mental health infrastructure today. It would look very little like the one we have. and that's more, you know, where we should be pointing the finger uh, hmm. for how we got here, especially when we look at other countries. In the U.S., we're terrible at this compared to other countries. So we know that the problem is much bigger than it's than just social media.
1: So then what do we do with something like the the Utah law, which, you know, is kind of the, the first big one out there, requires anyone under 18 to get parental consent to join social media platforms. Um, that feels like an inflection point. How, how do you think— that law does and and how should we approach this?
2: You know, it's it's good that we're paying attention to social media and we're thinking about ways to take what is a Wild West situation and put some reins on it. But I think it's really important that we don't have an all or nothing mindset when we think about this. So taking away the opportunity to gain social support, Creating a, a complete lack of privacy, especially among kids who might need and benefit from an opportunity to have free exploration, you know um, that might end up doing more damage than than good. So, scientifically, we we would probably advocate for something that's more about creating a platform's age appropriateness instead. So. How can the tools and the notifications and the opportunities be different for an eight-year-old compared to an 80-year-old? Because right now they're the same, and that's probably short-sighted. And similarly, what might be some competencies that we would want a kid to be able to demonstrate kind of like the driver's test of social media use before we give them the keys and just let them drive all over the internet you know, free reign. There are a variety of things that adults, but especially kids, might want to learn and understand and, and be recognizing before they just go use it in an unfettered, unmonitored way.
1: Well, I know the APA is talking to other states. So, like, what what are they asking you, and what are you telling them?
2: Well, so we're you know we're talking with them about the idea that there could be ways to change some of the functionality. On social media to be sensitive to adolescent brain development and psychological development. So take away that like button, take away the use of their data, you know, take away some of the algorithmic work or monitor that content. You know, so a kid who expresses a totally normal concern about their body shape isn't being pointed to a group that teaches them how to binge and fast and conceal that behavior from their parents. I think that if we had developmental glasses on and looked at social media, we would quickly say, oh, there are a variety of things here that make sense for adults, but not for kids. But I'm not sure the companies have modified it with that in mind.
1: I think there's this fundamental tension here, which is, you know, intrinsic to parenting, right? Like your job as a parent, first and foremost, is to keep your child safe. Their job is to grow away from you over time. And so it's this constant calibration of who is being independent, who is being a person. We, we've seen, you know, parents like, well, parents should get to approve curricula. I'm like, well, but kids also have a role here. And it feels like social media just exacerbates that, that tension. I, I wonder how you think we should think about that.
2: I mean, the way that I think about it is that social media has done something different different than the implicit contracts we all have with how we give our kids opportunities or things they can play with. You know, I assume if I buy a toy off a shelf in a normal toy store, right, someone has had to make sure that thing is safe. It's not going to explode in my kid's face. Somebody has made sure it's met some general checks and balances. It's not toxic. It's not going to, you know, destroy my child. Parents now are kind of shocked to realize, oh wait a minute, no one is looking over social media. Though nobody has made sure this is safe. I gave it to my kid to use for an hour while I was folding my laundry, but I'm I'm basically handing my kid's development over to someone who's looking to make a profit. You know, and that's a rude awakening, which has changed the social contract. I think of saying, wait a minute. We can't just hand this to our kids and assume someone's looked it over because no one has. So now we have to change that either by creating some oversight or by parents saying, wait a minute, I have to put way more restrictions on this than I realized. And I have to speak up when I find those restrictions are really buried in the platform and they're hard for me to get to and shut off.
1: I know, I know you have a baby, but I don't know if you have older kids. Um, have you thought about your child or children using social media?
2: Actually, my kids are in pre-adolescence, and um, and I am right there, you know. Uh, and we we do a lot of things. Um, first of all, I have gone deep dive into all of the screen control, you know, kind of uh, settings. Our kids are not on social media, no, but they do use screens for other things. And we've set up all the parental controls. Most importantly, though, we talk about it a lot. What do you see? What do you make of what you see? Why do you think people do that? Why do you think someone's spending billions of dollars to give you this for free just for your amusement? You know, why why do you think the people who develop this won't let their own kids use it? You know, so we're helping them to build the critical thinking skills, because they will one day be on, and they will use it. And we want to empower them to make the choices that are best for them by giving them good questioning and knowledge and information. And then The autonomy to, okay, well, are you using this longer than you wanted to? What does that tell you? (laughs) You know, when we get there, I assume we will be assessing for problematic social media use routinely. Is this serving your goals? You know, why did you spend three hours on? Did you mean to spend three hours on it? Like To empower them to make good decisions for themselves.
1: Dr. Mitch Prinstein, thank you very much for your time.
2: Oh, sure. Thank you so much.
1: Dr. Mitch Prinstein is the chief science officer for the American Psychological Association. Special thanks to Vishal Karupasamy, who wrote about his experience quitting TikTok for Slate and Zocalo Public Square. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong-Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. And TBD is part of the larger What Next family. We're also part of Future Tense, a partnership with Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you like us, the best way to support this show is to join Slate+. Plus. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. You'll get all your Slate podcasts ad-free. All right, we'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.